podcast this week, I get one degree closer to Kevin Bacon by interviewing Kevin Bacon, star of You Should Have Left, plus the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that is glad that we're going into tier two lockdown just ahead of Halloween because nothing, folks, will deter Michael Myers more than a curfew. Ha ha. Didn't think of that, Myers, did you? Stymied. Tomorrow is to Halloween. No, Halloween. Tomorrow is to Halloween. This ends now. This ends now. No more Silver Shamrock. Never. Never. No. No, absolutely not. Chris, you've seen what happens in Halloween, right? This is a glimpse into your future. <laughs> Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which ends with Tom Atkins screaming, Stop it. And that's what I intend to get you guys to do to me. Uh, that sounded weird and sexual. <laughs> Good but, uh, It's not. Anyway, hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Emperor Podcast. This week, I am joined by three colleagues of such lethal cunning, but also lethal unpreparedness, which means that the three fact structure, which I was going to bring back this week, was apparently news to uh, my three colleagues of such lethal cunning, so they have asked for it to be delayed until next week. Anyway, well, we've tried the filibuster to get rid of it. Now we're just trying with flat out gaslighting. It's unkillable. It's like it's like Jason Voorhees. Uh, anyway, <laughs> please welcome our geek queen Helen O'Hara. Hello. Our nerd, whatever the hell he is, our nerd emperor <laughs> penguin James Dyer. Hello. And of course, penguins. the best dressed man in film journalism, Amon Warren. Hello. How are you all? Good. Well, we're in, we're on level two lockdown now, so you know. By the time people listen to this, to, or what are we? Yeah, what are we now? Well, we will be because it comes in on Friday night. So it's uh, so I guess depending on when you listen to it, it's either coming in or about to come in. Mm. But we are stepping up to Move Alert, which of course does mean changing the bulb. <laughs> <laughs> Cracking red dwarf gag there, uh, yep. in case people didn't get the. Reference. Uh, how many degrees are you all separated from Kevin Bacon? Um, One. Yeah, I mean, One. well, the thing is, it depends if you have to, like, we haven't been in a movie with him. It depends how strict you are on the rules. Have I interviewed him? I think I have. I you think you know when we did all those video interviews? We used to do video interviews for the website and they'd be five minute interviews. Yes. And I don't remember everyone I did for those because they were so fast. I'm pretty sure I talked to him, though, because I'm pretty sure I had this conversation with myself. The journalistic equivalent of speed dating. <laughs> yeah, really. And about as memorable as most speed dates, you know, so... Well, I think, Helen, like, you have the, the highest viewed one on Empire's YouTube channel with Tom Hiddleston, isn't it? Was it Tom Hiddleston I, and no, Benedict Tom Cumberbatch? Hiddleston and Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah. That's why it's the highest viewed uh, interview <laughs> on Empire's social channels. Yeah. I also got one degree closer to Kevin Bacon recently. I also interviewed him for uh, You Should Have Left. So, so yeah, I guess two, three. I don't know how, I don't know how the game so, works. <laughs> so what is that? Are we one degree? I've interviewed him before. I've even been in the same room as him. But does that mm. mean I'm one degree from Kevin Bacon? Or do I have I to have so. worked with someone who has worked with someone who has worked with someone who has worked with Kevin Bacon? Is that how it works? I don't know. Is that the idea of the game? The six, the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, in case people don't know what we're talking about? I'm on EE. Does that mean I'm automatically <laughs> one degree of Kevin Bacon? <laughs> does that mean he comes around and checks your phone out? And He does. Well, Whenever I have a problem, he's the tech support guy. Yeah. He comes around and fixes it. What a guy. That guy's still cashing residual EE checks. On those adverts, fair play. Oh, he's them. still doing them. He's still, yeah, yeah. The pandemic has not stopped him. He's still, he's still <laughs> beavered away. And absolutely, yeah, more power to his elbow. That's what I say. Play, yeah. You can do it. You can do it. Uh, but if EE are thinking of dropping him in any 
time and <laughs> hiring someone else who's then significantly cheaper yes. and available, then yeah. <laughs> Both uh, Amon and myself are definitely one degree closer to Kevin Bacon than we once were, so it's like it's like Kevin Bacon. Pretty much Kevin Bacon. It's pretty much just like vegan bacon. Oh, <laughs> That's what we are. Um, but anyway, enough talk about Kevin Bacon. And because the three fact structure has been postponed to next week, even though Amon and James had backup facts, Helen, I, mean, I can pull something. Brain- I can pull something off the top of my head. But oh, like, really? You know, okay. Well, in that case, looks. Look, hey, folks, looks at the three fact structures back this week. Oh, okay, keep God. it quick. Keep it short. Amon, you said you had one in reserve. What is your fact? Wow me. Okay, so I was uh, researching one of my favorite films of all time, Gladiator, recently uh, for a uh, piece, and I I'm just- not entertained. <laughs> Give it a second, James. I'm warming up to it. Okay, get this way. The tiger's um- not real. Russell is not real. Rome wasn't real. It wasn't built in a day. It's true. It certainly wasn't. It takes a long time to do CG like that. <laughs> Unless it's a Scorpion King, in which case it is a day. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that film. Um, but yes, Gladiator, I discovered that Russell Crowe's look in that film was inspired by none other than George Michael. I did not know this, but it was inspired by... Russell Crowe's haircut was inspired by the Jesus to a Child cover album, the George Michael album. And that is, ah. what, that is, that is how he modelled his look. Hang on, hang on. Where have you got this so-called this, fact from? This is on the commentary of Gladiator. This is the commentary track. Russell Crowe says it. I thought you meant that uh, Russell Crowe was in a, in a barber shop getting his hair cut and then George Michael drove a car through the window of the barbers the and the barber <laughs> accidentally just shaved off his hair in fright and, it, and he had to go with it. That's where, that's where I thought you were going with that. But no, it's actual actual inspiration. Action okay, source. yeah, I can see that. Although that is what I think happened with Hawkeye in Infinity War, I, I, he must have been mid haircut or something, and the barber just 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 faded away. That's yep. the only explanation sure. for whatever the hell that is on his head in that film. Well, instead of instead of starting Endgame with Hawkeye's family blipping, they could have or you know disappearing in the snap, they could have just had him in a in a barber shop it having his haircut. More sense. And the scissors just fall to the floor as the barber gets snapped, leaving him unfinished and unable to get the haircut completed yeah. and just walking out. Yeah. So Hawkeye's story in Avengers Endgame is he's a bloke traveling the world looking for someone to finish him off. Is that is that basically where we're at? Yes. Yeah. That is, that oh is the subplot. Oh so many poorly chosen words in that sentence. So also, it was a five-year period. Like, his hair would have grown again. So I don't think this holds up at all. See, yeah. this is my problem with Natasha's hair in Endgame. I think that, you know... That's five years worth of growth. Is it five years worth of colour change? Because surely her colour would have reverted a lot quicker than that. No, but like the, the bit at the bottom was bleached and then the bit at the yeah. top is it's her natural out, red. Yeah. yeah, but would it take five years or would it take long? Yeah, but you don't know when she stopped bleaching. She may not, she may have, you know, bleached for a period of time after the snap, you know, just been bereft, friends are dead, go to a stylist, make yourself feel better and then eventually realise it just wasn't doing it for mm-hmm. her so she let it grow out. All right. Like it was, it was about like six, eight inches of of red hair before the bleach bit. So that is probably about five years. I mean, you is know, it how far does hair? Can... How fast does hair grow? Well, I know that when I had a really, you know, ill-advised short crop at one point for reasons. Did it you? Was a whole th- when did oh, you have it was... a short crop? Hang on, Helen, I've known you for about forty years. Yeah, like, when there was did you have like a short... forty-five ago in that case. But, um, <laughs> no, it was when pictures. I was at uni. It was oh no, it was when I was at uni. I went in to get a a, a 
uh, cut to like bottom of my chin level. The guy cut it to like middle of my ear level, which was horrific on a whole other scale. So then I had to get like a crop after that and get it to sort of just like a, you know, just short hair length. And then it took me a year to grow it out to like a mini bob. And then it took another year or two to get to like shoulder length again. So, you know, Is it this takes your a fact because you're winning? No, but I do. I actually, my 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 fact is hair related, so maybe I should follow on from Amal. Fuck it. All right, Helen, <laughs> let's go for it. My my fact is about indirectly how Barbara Streisand came to direct. Have I told you this one? Is this is this anything to do with John Peters? It does have something to do with John Peters. So okay. uh, Barbara Streisand, obviously in the seventies, uh, had a long relationship with John Peters, who became a very famous Hollywood producer. Has had a very long and successful career in many ways, um, but started out as a hairstylist. Started out working around Hollywood as a sort of celebrity hairstylist, which is how he met Streisand and how they got together. Then you know he he becomes her boyfriend. He he talks to her a lot. He has great ideas. He get wants to get involved in everything. Obviously wanted to break into the movie business. So when she was working on her version of A Star Is Born, the one with Chris Christopherson, Peters put himself forward to direct it based on absolutely fucking nothing. Like he'd done nothing at that point. He wasn't a producer yet. He certainly hadn't got any directing experience. He just cut hair. And Barbara Streisand thought to herself. If this dude has the chutzpah to, you know, put himself forward for this job, what the fuck am I waiting for? And it was that that led her to decide to make Yentl herself, to direct Yentl herself. She'd already been working on it for a long time, trying to get it made. But it was John Peters putting himself forward for A Star Is Born that made her direct it. Wow. So it's only tangentially hair related, but it, it took is her hair a while related. to get around it, though, didn't didn't it? What, uh, after that? Well, yeah, because it yeah. took a long time for any of the studios to get behind it because they didn't see the commercial appeal in this film, which did make uh, money at the box office, did win awards, did get very good reviews. Um, but yeah, it did take her a while to get it made. And she had to add the musical numbers to get it made. It was not originally going to have any songs whatsoever. And John Peters was also suggesting that there should be a giant spider in Yentl live. <laughs> a giant robot spider that she should fight uh, in order yes. to graduate, yes, from from uh, rabbinical school. Papa, can you hear that? It's a giant robot. You know, that, that song from Do Yentl Lives Cut. Do you want to build a snowman? <laughs> Do you want to fight a spider? <laughs> All right, two good facts so far. Jimbo, let's bring this bad boy home. Oh, God. So my fact is I wish to explore the connection between Tom Cruise and the forces of hell. See, so I wish you not to explore it. <laughs> I can. I can just not do this fact. I'm more than happy to. We can just move on. A forced verdict. <laughs> what, what is the connection between who, who and what? Well, I'm not sure I want to tell you now. Oh, go on. Tell me. Don't tell him. Tell me. Fine. Fine. This fact is just for Helen. Yes, I'm going to mute uh, my headphones. And as all great me? facts for Helen... Yeah, it's a bit for Amon as well. Uh, it's as all great facts for Helen's begin, this is about a video game, because I know that Helen oh, is a them. rabbit gamer and will, of course, rabbits. appreciate it. Yeah. So, 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 cast your mind back to 1986 and the release of The Colour of Money. There is a scene in The Colour of Money, uh, set in a pool hall, you might be surprised to hear. <laughs> and uh, at, one, <laughs> at one point, a guy approaches Tom Cruise's character, kind of swaggers up to him, and he nods to the case in Tom Cruise's lap and says, what have you got in there? And Tom Cruise looks at it, he goes, in here. And he looks at it and he caresses the case. And then he says, 
doom. <laughs> Not quite like that. And then he does the Tom Cruise grin. He does the Tom Cruise grin and proceeds to kick the guy's ass at Paul. Obviously, what the film's about. But but that moment is what inspired a guy called John Carmack, who was the co-founder of id Software. When he released the game Doom in 1993, it is called Doom because that was the moment. He said that he thought this game, which was a game-changing first-person shooter... It's the one I've dro- played. Which Helen has played (laughs) when he dropped that on the game industry. He wanted it to feel like that moment. Like, what have you got in that box? And he's like... (laughs) Doom. So to create that kind of, you know, Tom Cruise colour of money swagger, that's why he called Doom, Doom. Oh, that's and, good. And just, just in case people don't know, Doom is one of the most iconic video games ever made. So it's not yeah. just some random thing I pulled it's out. It's the one I've played. It's what Helen's <laughs> played it. It is so famous, Helen, who hates all things video game, has played this game. Have you seen the film? Yeah. Doom, yes, I, indeed uh, I have. Yeah. Unfortunately. Oh, well. It's uh, it's got uh, it's got Lawrence Johnson in it. He's uh, he's really good uh, in that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a niche gag. <laughs> I don't know how this happened, but a tweet went up on the Empire Twitter feed about an hour ago. I'd yeah. say saying. Sarah Shahi has joined Dwayne Lawrence in Black Adam. <laughs> what? Dwayne Lawrence. <laughs> I mean, I can. Maybe understand people going, oh, Dwayne Roxon, or getting it, getting it wrong a little bit, but not inventing a completely different surname for the man. Like, he's one of the most famous people on the planet. So we're trying to get to the bottom of how this tweet yeah. happened. Um, rock the Dwayne Johnson. Yes, Rock the Dwayne Johnson, as we used to call him all the time on the on the website uh, back in the, the good old days. Uh, mm. But yeah, it, it, so it's Dwayne Johnson, not Dwayne Lawrence, or Lawrence Johnson, mm. as I referred to him in an amusing follow-up tweet that confused people. <laughs> they, thought, they thought we were having a stroke. <laughs> I think that's why. We can't rule that out. No, we can't. I really want to know Dwayne Johnson's middle name now. Is it Lawrence? Oh, if it is, then this is super meta. Wow. I'm going to look it up. Okay. If it is Dwayne Lawrence Johnson, then I think we, we get off on a technicality. I hope christened The Rock as his middle name. It is not Lawrence. Would you care to take a guess? It is a, it's a, it's a, you know, as Luca, as Luca Brasi might say, it's a masculine name. It is a name that is... Um, Bruno. Rocky. Ooh, it's, it, um, it, it is, a, it's, a, it can be a surname and a first name. It is a surname that is perhaps uh, very, very famous for a Hollywood dynasty of some kind. So... Barrymore. <laughs> Baldwin. Dwayne, Dwayne Baldwin Johnson. That would be amazing. Not Houston, not Houston, but um, like a, a very famous actor, producer. Douglas. Then... Yes. Dwayne Douglas Johnson. Huh. Dwayne the Doug Johnson. That's great. I love it. DDJ, Dwayne Douglas Johnson. Anyway, back to the three five structure, and I can officially declare this week's winner to be... James, that yes. fact impressed me quite a lot, as did the other fact as well. But that was a good one. And it will be back next week. Keep them brief. Oh. Brevity is the key, folks. <laughs> brevity is the key. I've always said that. I've always said that brevity is the key, going all the way back to Thanks, the beginning. Oh, yes. <laughs> this is a famously brief podcast, so uh, yes. that makes absolute sense. I am trying to keep it below four weeks. <laughs> it's the recording session. Okay, so that was the three-fact structure, and now it is time to get into the listener question, which this week comes, as indeed most weeks it does, uh, from Twitter. And I think a Twitter question asker newcomer, I don't recall this name popping up before, at Ben underscore Oliver 1982. And they ask, 
Best ever use of prosthetics without a shred of CG on a human character in a film. I was actually going to have this as a question this week anyway. And then, of course, we saw this week that the Batman is up filming in Liverpool. Mm. There's been pictures of Robert Pattinson and his frankly un-Bruce Wayne-like hair running around <laughs> Liverpool. Like, is it? I don't like it. I don't, I don't like I it, don't Helen. Approve. Yeah. I don't approve. I mean, like Nightwing it. can have that hair. Even Daredevil could have that hair. I yep. don't think that's Bruce Wayne hair. This is a very hairy episode of the podcast. <laughs> it is quite hairy, isn't it? Good Lord. Hamon and I are feeling quite yes. discriminated. Do you want a number call? Do you want a hotline? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, I'm not sure about it. It's, it's a hair that says... Help, George Michael drove into my barbers halfway through this haircut. It, <laughs> but the reason this is relevant to the question, Robert Pattinson's uh, Batman hair aside, mm. is, of course, Colin Farrell is in Liverpool this week as well. And it is him in heavy, heavy prosthetics <laughs> yeah. as Oswald Cobblepot, a.k.a. the Penguin. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, guys, that that's really fucking good makeup. It's yeah. really good, but if you're going to paint over the Mona Lisa, like it better be good. Do you know what I mean? Like you don't. Why would you do that to that face? It's very upsetting to me. It's like it makes it makes Charlize Theron's makeup in Monster look positively understated. Like I just yeah. don't understand why people must uh, uh, vandalize beautiful people. Someone said that um, he looks like someone microwaved Bruce Campbell. And <laughs> someone else said, and this is a reference, I think only maybe Amon might get in this room, but he looks like the former Arsenal manager, George Graham. And he does. He really, really does. Yeah. So I can only imagine that the Batman is going to be all about uh, the Penguin teaching his minions to hold a very, very tight back line and then get Batman on the offside trap. Would watch. Uh-huh. No. Ah, that's good. Uh-huh. Yes, that's, that's funny. That was an amusing uh-huh. reference. To football. I'm I- sorry, I stopped listening. Oh, association football, eh? There is an answer to this that I think is the, probably the right answer. All right, good. We can all go home. It's it's not necessarily the best film, I wouldn't say, but I, I no, but- do think that Kazuhiro Tsuji's <laughs> makeup in The Darkest Hour on Winston Churchill is actually oh, very, see- very good. That's very good. See, I was gonna, I was gonna drop that, but I was gonna drop it as a sort of Gary Oldman double bill along with Bram Stoker's Dracula, because I think <laughs> the, no, no, there will be no scoffing at Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is a film that well, it's the same, it's the same makeup artist, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. So, and he looks, he, it, like, he, he's good. You're very both good. incorrect because there is a correct answer to this question. <laughs> it's still not Norbert. <laughs> it is not Norbert, but it is to do with Eddie Murphy, because Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall in Coming to America. Oh, yes. Yeah, the makeup yeah, in that good. is legendary. And obviously there's Saul that- Saul the barber the, in the barber shop. Exactly. Yep. There's that famous story of the producers coming on set and you know, uh, Eddie Murphy being- uh, in his sort of uh, as as Saul in, in his Jewish in white face in, yes. in white face, and they didn't know that it was him the entire time they were on set. That is incredible. So for mm. me, that is the answer. It is very good. But I did have it is very impressive. I did have Guy Oldman. I did have Charlize Theron and Bombshell, which is also by by Kazuhiro, and also mm. another one that came came to mind: Tilda Swinton in Suspiria when she plays Doctor Klemperer. If I didn't know yes. that was her going in, I would never have guessed. Uh, that was pretty impressive could, as well. You could tell it was something. Like I, I didn't know. I think it hadn't been announced when I saw it. And I could tell it was something under there. But I couldn't tell who. But I mean, you can tell it's somebody under Winston Churchill, I guess. But I just, I still think it's an incredible, incredible piece of makeup that because, mm. you know, it would be hard to find a white man who looks less like Winston Churchill than Gary Oldman. <laughs> and yet they, they kind of got away with it anyway. 
so yeah, full 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 props for that one. Mark Wahlberg makes some pretty good use of prosthetics in Boogie Nights, but the less said about that, the better. Um, I want to give a shout to Mrs. Doubtfire. Mm. Oh, uh, yeah. I think that's excellent, not least of all because she applies it and unapplies it on screen. Um, well, kind of. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think that's great. It is yeah, very well done, shout. yeah. Absolutely. Jimbo, if we had gone for wrong actors only, who would you have gone for? I'm Norbert. thinking, for example... <laughs> oh, the yeah. makeup isn't the problem in that. It was Oscar nominated. Don't you dare diss Rick Baker. Ra- don't diss Rasputia. <laughs> White girls would probably be in there for the wrong answers. Oh, oh, that was bad. True identity. Remember true identity? No. Who can forget true identity? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, indeed. Oh. Well, not white girls, um, white chicks. I said white girls? My white goodness. chicks, yeah, it's white chicks. <laughs> no, <I mean>. uh, <laughs> the white chicks, yeah, yeah. We've all erased it from our mind, I'm on. Don't worry, it's, it's rightly it's totally so. fine. Rightly so. It's only good for the a thousand mile scene. I don't even remember that. Oh yeah, 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 Iconic yeah, scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, we, iconic. We may need to talk about your use of the word iconic. That is an iconic scene. <laughs> like, you had to remind me of it. Anyway, <laughs> I'm arguing that's not iconic. Does anyone remember Dan Aykroyd's directorial debut, Nothing yes. But Trouble? And his prosthetics in oh, that film. Oh my God, it's so yeah. bad. Uh, but you remember a few weeks ago when we did that Cone discussion heads. about... Cone heads, yes, because I totally Wait. bought that they had cones in their heads. We said human characters only, so forget that I said mm-hmm. it. That doesn't count. We didn't. Um, the questioner did. The question <laughs> bloke did, yes. So that rules out things like Planet of the Apes. And, and Lord of the Rings. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. What's great in Lord of the Rings? Well, the Uruks. And yeah. the Orcs. That is good. Yeah. That, that is, is very, very good. good. I will mm-hmm. grant you that. There is a right answer here, and it's, I guess it is, as Amon said, it's Eddie Murphy adjacent, but only because Rick Baker is the answer, and it's American Werewolf in London. It's still yeah. not human. absolutely well, he is he human. Well, human. he is human, he just becomes a wolf. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I know, it's, it's, it's a grey area, that one is, but yeah, uh-huh. the... the, the, the that's amazing. And it's just so tragic when you go from that and then you watch American Werewolf in Paris and you're like, what oh. were you thinking? <laughs> what were they doing? What were they doing? Oh, God, because if it's if it's non-human, then we, that rules out Robotine for the thing. And my thing about this is that, by and large, horror films tend to get overlooked in this stuff. So remember a few weeks ago we did the 80s soundtrack question and we ended up looking at the best original song category in the Oscars and mm-hmm. finding it more often than not, they just reward middle of the road nonsense ahead of some truly iconic songs. Sure. Uh, and I mean mm-hmm. iconic in the sense that that scene from White Chicks is iconic, of course. <laughs> so I'm just having a quick look here at the best makeup and hairstyling uh, winners and nominees over the years. And now in fairness, it was brought in because of horror. You say that. But at the same time, I don't see Tom Savini's name in here in, uh, as a nominee. I don't see Greg Nicotero's name or or uh, Howard Berger's names on here as nominees very often, if at all. Mm. Uh, you know, Rick Baker is genius and wins loads of stuff. But for example, Howard Berger of KNB has won an Oscar, but it was for the Chronicles of Narnia and none of the incredible horror stuff he's done over the years. And so there's still that snobbery even within the industry, which is wild. But yes, it came in in 1981 for Rick Baker in American Werewolf in London. Rob Bottin didn't get nominated that same year for the incredible work he did also in The Howling, which is 
mad. But uh, so I'm just going to go very, very quickly through some of these and see if any of these stand out for you. Uh, so Amadeus, nineteen eighty four, some decent uh, Dick Smith. Very good aging there. Old yeah, age yeah. makeup. Dick Smith is the king of that sort of stuff. Uh, you know, if you look at The Exorcist, you know, I think the idea we always had that Baxman Sidow was in his seventies is because, like, perpetually <laughs> yeah. in his seventies, is because yeah. of The Exorcist and the makeup yeah. and that being so, so good. Uh, Harry and Henderson's Bigfoot the Henderson's one in 1987 uh, you know mm-hmm. uh, Chris Wallace for the fly so the fly Jeff Goldblum but, would, yeah. would but Helen, again would that is count? He, does it count as human at that point hmm. Brundlefly mm. Brundlefly uh, Dick Tracy Dick Tracy there's good prosthetics 1990 Tracy but again, I, right okay so I know they're like technically human characters but they're not they're not going for realistic human characters in that, that film. That wasn't are they? a stipulation. <laughs> I mean, it should be. I feel like should reading it? between the lines. Yeah, I don't think so. They're um, grotesque. They're they're grotesque. Absolutely, yeah, but they're, yeah not, but they're not like within the realm of realism. Grotesque. I mean, they're not aliens the unless I'm massively misreading the plot of that film. I mean, maybe <laughs> make it quite interesting. I love that film. I think it's hugely underrated. Is it though? Yeah. <laughs> 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 But then in fairness, we, uh, that's a very quoted film in my home growing up. The line, when do we eat, uh, is enormously useful uh, in many circumstances. I mean, that's so. just something you say in everyday conversation. <laughs> no, no, we say, we say it in the way that the, the orphan says it in the film. It's a whole thing. Also, okay. the songs are fucking great. Uh, so Bram Stoker's Dracula also won the Academy mm. Award you'd be delighted to know right. for Greg Canham, Michelle Burke and Matthew W. Mungle. Mrs. Doubtfire won Good. Yep. in 1993 yes. beating Philadelphia right, and Schindler's mm. List. What won in 2009? Beating Il Devo and The Young Victoria. My God, how do they decide these films to be nominated? <laughs> uh, Star Trek. Yes. Okay. Yeah, no, okay. Because of... Painting people green? Aliens mm. and such? There was an Orion, Orion girl. <laughs> it was green. I don't know that she had any uh, prosthetics on. Um, Eric Barnes never was, was, was well done. But I'm just thinking yeah. of um, um, The I, Dark Knight and Heath Ledger and, and that... That makeup job and prosthetic job was very impressive also. 2008. It was nominated in 2008 alongside Hellboy 2. Mike Elisaldi, who's a, also a, a genius prosthetics bloke, didn't win. Hellboy 2 didn't win. The Dark Knight didn't win. They were both beaten by the curious case of Benjamin Button. Mm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I think that one was battling the uncanny valley a little bit for me. Like it's very, I can tell it's very impressive and I still didn't buy it at the time. It was, it was an odd one. It was an odd one, wasn't it? I'm still not entirely sure how I feel about that film. I did feel a lot by the time it ended that I had lived an entire life in reverse, so maybe that was the point. <laughs> yeah, it's I've very seen strange that film in a long time. I mean, there's a lot of really good prosthetics jobs recently, you know, a lot, a lot of great stuff in the in the MCU as well. It never mm-hmm. seems to get nominated, which is very, very strange. But I'm just very, real quick, real quick, I'm just going to go through and pull out some of the other ones that stand out to me. Braveheart won. Well, for painting a blue <laughs> yeah. bit Word. on Mel Gibson's face. <laughs> uh, an anachronistic blue bit at that. Oh, I know. It took me out of the movie. I was furious. I know, right? It did. It did halfway decent leprosy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if we're talking that. leprosy, if we're talking leprosy, then the director's cut of uh, Kingdom of Heaven would surely oh, run away with yes. us. Oh, my goodness. Don't even yes. get me started on That's that. Got, uh, got lepers up the wazoo. Rick Baker won in 1996 for The Nutty Professor. Yes, yeah, I was great. going to mention yeah. that. It was really, really good. Yeah, it was very good. Uh, he also won again, along with David Leroy Anderson, both years, uh, for Men in Black, which is fantastic. But mm-hmm. uh, I'm trying to think of the great prosthetics on a human character in that. It's, there's Not loads really. of other great yeah, bits of makeup. Any, isn't it? Vincent D'Onofrio gets the bulk of it. He's technically a human character. 
He's just got uh, an alien, you know, in him. Okay. Because well, yeah. he starts human, doesn't he? He's just got a cockroach alien in him. Yeah. As you do. <laughs> <laughs> Some absolutely wild shouts here. There really are. Uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, 2000. Yeah. It's very green. It's it's not necessarily the winners sometimes, it's the other nominees. So How the Grinch Stole Christmas beats Shadow of the Vampire. Actually, Shadow of the Vampire has great makeup mm. in it because Willem Dafoe looks exactly like Max Shrek from mm. the Murnau film. So, wow, that's that's an interesting one. But then Carrie, that's very good prosthetics. Mm. But is it only human? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lemony Snicket's A Series of Force and Defense, Chronicles of Narnia, Lana Witch in the Wardrobe. Um, they made Liam Neeson look like a lion. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> I'm bang on board with that. Uh-huh. Hans Labyrinth won in 2006. That's great. Yeah. That's, That's great, 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 great prosthetics. Yeah. yeah. The Wolfman, Rick Baker again, but a lot of CG in that, which wasn't terribly good. The Iron Lady, 2011. Yeah. Where's Monster in this list? <laughs> Monster wasn't even nominated. That's wow. madness. Mm. And the whole point of that performance is that Charlize Theron is, I would say, almost legitimately unrecognisable, yeah. which takes some doing. It has to be said. So, don't know what the hell was going on there. Uh, Les Miserables won this no. somehow. I don't know how. <laughs> Beating Hitchcock and The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey. Dallas Buyers Club, Grand Beauty Best Hotel, Matt Max, Fury Road. Suicide Squad, The Darkest Hour, Feist, and Bombshell. Did Coming to America win? No. It was beaten what? by Beetlejuice. Okay, yeah, I can't imagine that. Uh, Scrooge was also beaten that same year. I just thought of another option for your wrong answers only. Looper. They tried to make Joseph Gordon and Bruce Willis. Making ju- they yeah. failed. I yeah. liked what they did there. I liked really? that. That was very subtle. Didn't work because... They didn't go full Willis. <laughs> well, the problem yeah. is we know what young Bruce Willis looks like. Yeah. And that's yeah. the problem. So you're <laughs> not, it's not going to work for you. But I liked what they did with his nose and, you know... When we're saying bad makeup here, what do you mean? Like it falling, the nose falling off in the middle of the scene? Like maybe if you were doing a school play and your eyebrows came off while you were <laughs> you trying desperately to, you know, paste them back on? Uh, it's not quite that bad. But yeah, I don't I don't have an answer beyond anything Rick Baker has done. But I, I just would like some geniuses like Greg Nicotero and Tom Savini to be recognised in this category uh, going forward. And Rob Bottin, the great Rob Bottin, who is no longer working in the in the industry. Mm. And uh, what a shame that is. If you want to have your question read out on the Emperor podcast and treat it with the respect it deserves as... I've forgotten his name. How's that for respect? <laughs> ben? Ben. At Ben underscore Oliver 1982. I don't think that's his full name, if I'm honest with you. But uh, you can get in touch with us via a number of methods, mainly Twitter these days. So just slide into my DMs. I'm at Chris Hewitt on Twitter or reply to one of my tweets or wait for the odd shout out. Didn't have to do one this week because Ben sent in this question in reply to last week's shout out. And I've actually banked a couple for future episodes. So no shout outs for me for the time being. And it is time now for this week's guest. And as mentioned earlier on, it is the one, the only Kevin Bacon. And we all feel a little bit closer now to Kevin Bacon. And what a career this guy has had. It was, ooh, let me see now, 40 years ago, 40 years ago that Tom Savini, the aforementioned Tom Savini, was shoving a fake arrow through Kevin Bacon's chest for Friday the 13th. And that was basically where he got his start here, being killed by not Jason Voorhees, but Mrs. Voorhees in that original slasher movie. But despite that, he he got better and he went on to do all sorts of stuff. You know, there's, let me see what else. Let's list Kevin Bacon movie, shall we? Footloose. JFK. Tremors. A Few Good Men. Tremors. 
Apollo 13. Oh yeah, love yeah. that. And of course, the wonderful Stir of Echoes, which he made 21 years ago. And that saw what? him team up with David Kep, the legendary screenwriter David Kep, uh, who was then turning his hand to directing as well. 21 years have passed, but the two are still firm friends and they are working together again for the first time since then. They've worked together again since uh, Kevin Bacon has voiced a an audio short story that David Kep has written, which is out now on Audible. But they are back on the Welsh set horror film, You Should Have Left. You should have bloody left! You should have left! Which came out this week on PVOD, available to rent or buy wherever you rent or buy such things. Kevin Bacon jumped on to Zoom, the dread Zoom with me, uh, a few weeks ago, and we had a nice chat. I uh, don't think there are too many sound issues with this one. So here we are, Kevin Bacon and I talking about horror, working with David Kep, and all sorts of other stuff besides, including, I think, the EE adverts. Hmm, interesting. Enjoy. EE enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor podcast in lockdown, of course, by the star of You Should Have Left, Mr. Kevin Bacon. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, good to hear. Good to hear. Uh, whereabouts in the world are you at the moment? I'm in northwestern Connecticut. Um, we have a uh, farm up here, and this is where we've been for, uh, um, I guess, three months, four months, something like that. Okay. So is that somewhere that you, whenever the uh, pandemic started hitting and lockdown came in in full effect you thought okay we're gonna we're gonna go here now or is this somewhere that you spent a lot of your time anyway well this is, this is a place where we spent a lot of time anyway but um yeah it's uh it's it's uh but it definitely was it's been it's been a great place to be during the pandemic uh we go back and forth from manhattan um mm -hmm. and you know li listen i mean we we can go outside and, and not wear a mask because there's nobody here. Um, so it's a real different kind of, um, you know, life when you're in the, in the city, which I, I still love and adore um, New York City. And we're still going down and, uh, you know, sort of checking in with our hometown every once in a while. But, uh, <laughs> but it's a lot easier being here with no mask. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. I'm still doing the mask thing every time I pop out of the shops here in London. Oh, believe me, we do it in New York too, and it, yeah. and it's it's very it's it's very important. I mean, I you know you can't emphasize enough. Uh, you know, in, in the little town down the road from us, I just got back from the grocery store, and of course, you know, put on my mask the second I stepped out of the car, and uh, that that seems to be uh, uh, that seems to be one thing that the virus doesn't like, and therefore we should embrace it. Absolutely. And uh, but generally speaking, how, how have you been doing in lockdown? How have, you, how have you been coping? Have you been keeping yourself busy and creative? I feel very, very grateful uh, to have a roof over my head, to have food to eat, to have um, someone that I love to be in lockdown with. And uh, so we, we're 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 doing OK. You know, I mean, we it's, it's funny. We were talking the other day about how we've been married 30, I think we're going to be 32 years in, in September. And um, we've never, thank you. We've never spent this much time together ever. I mean, in, in 32 years, it's, it's because, you know, we're vagabonds. We, we have suitcases packed and we're always ready to go someplace on the road. And if, if we're not on the road, we figure out a way to get on the road. And I think in some ways, as, as much as we, love spending time together. That's been what's, you know, really helped us hold this marriage uh, together. It's just the fact that we, we do have some kind of separation sometimes. So the yeah. fact that we're surviving 
the marriage is surviving this kind of being really like right on top of each other is, is, is actually remarkable. And, uh, and, uh, so we're very, very happy with that. <laughs> and in terms of creativity, honestly, yeah. I mean, I have been doing a lot of stuff creatively, but I also feel like it's, it's less out of a desire to be creative and more out of a desire to have a job. I'm just like a working type person. You know what I mean? Mm. I just need to get up every day and, and figure out something to do that feels like work. I don't, I don't like vacations. I don't like the golf course. I don't like, you know, building, I mean, you know what I mean? I, I yeah. want to like create, I want to do something that, so yeah, I've, I've, uh, writ- written, um, some songs, you know, made some videos of that songs. My wife and I wrote, directed, shot, operated a, um, a short that we're in the middle of working on now. I, I did another video for another, um, tune the other day. Yeah. I mean, I've been really busy. I have to say. Amazing. It must help as well, Kevin, that you have so many hats, though, that, you know, you're, you're not just an actor, but you're a musician as well. And it, you can you can turn your hand to any number of things, really. Keep yourself, you know, keep yourself busy. Keep your hand in creatively. Yeah, I can. Um, and um, the other thing that's really nice is that in this day and age, you know, technology is that's the opportunity to really have at our fingertips um, great tools to create things. I mean, for instance, I w- there was a, a, I wanted to do a video of this new song and I, I never really understood uh, or I've never really delved, you know, uh, dove into uh, stop motion animation. And all of a sudden I was like, well, this would be, that would be a good thing for this song. So I started to like learn through apps, basically stop motion animation. And <laughs> um, it's been really, really fun. Uh, and it's, and as you can imagine, it's, it's very um, uh, time consuming. Yes, it is. I can imagine you get maybe what one or two seconds in a day, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not as you yeah. Know. I mean, if you're really, really <laughs> serious at it, that's true. Yes, you would. But you know, I'm a, I'm a little more uh, sloppy than that. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, you're not quite Ray Harryhausen yet. I don't know who that is, but I'm sure I'm not. <laughs> Obviously, you filmed. You should have left long before there was a pandemic, long before there was a lockdown. Maybe this is just something I'm finding with a lot of movies these days, but I watched it and I thought, oh, this is a movie just made for these times, isn't it? I mean, this is about your character in this, not creepy necessarily because it's a lovely house, but, but in lockdown, in isolation and going slowly mad. And it feels like it was made five minutes ago. Yeah, no, it definitely has that vibe. And, uh, you know, we we're going to release it, um, on PVOD, you know, uh, mm. paid video in the, in the States anyway. And, mm. and then all of a sudden we started thinking, you know, maybe this is a good time for this movie. It's two people, three people that mm. are, you know, in this house that keeps pulling them back, that they have a hard time, you know, leaving. And there's, and a lot of things that are happening in this country, a lot of people are tr- wanting to, move into more isolated communities. You see that again and again and again, you know, this kind of idea of, uh, you know, online rentals has really um, taken off and people are heading for different, you know, rental houses in order to get some distance from the, Mm -hmm. from everybody else. And, and the movie just kind of lined right up with that. You know, it's, it's not about a pandemic. So, uh, and it's not, 
we, you know, obviously we didn't, we didn't know we were going to have a pandemic, you know, when we made the movie, mm. well, maybe Bill, Bill Gates did, but we didn't know. And, <laughs> and so, uh, it, it just, it just, it just, you know, it was kind of serendipitous. I like that you mentioned that you had just been, you just come back from the grocery store in the town near where you live now, because there's a, there's a very interesting, funny scene in this movie where you go to a grocery store in a, a small town in Wales and get pretty short shrift. I, I'm, I'm guessing you don't get the same treatment in your local grocery store. Uh, no, they treat me pretty well. I mean, I've been here, you know, since 1983. So, but, but I can <laughs> tell you that they, what they don't treat me like is um a movie star they are you know everybody is very like it's a, it has a little bit of that welsh kind of vibe around here where where it's a pretty tight um knit kind of community and 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 if you're coming in you know as a tourist or whatever they they're definitely aware of that and possibly you know treat you a little bit differently mm. um yeah that was a fun little um scene to shoot and i i my my favorite thing is when the when the uh the guy i say i say to the guy well i'm I'm," he says something and i say i'm so sorry i don't speak welsh and he goes it was english (laughs) (laughs) was that your experience in in wales generally speaking Um, yeah no not so much i mean i think that people um you know probably knowing that we were americans you know would 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 you know probably make 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 their accent dial their accent down a little bit so it became a little clearer but I have to say that um, it, being in Wales and shooting in Wales was was fantastic. Um, the writer David he said it in Wales, and I had never been there. I didn't know anything uh, really about uh, the Welsh countryside other than just kind of an, an image, you know, in my in my mind of it. But uh, it was um, it was very very helpful, I think, to the tone of the movie and and the, certainly the look of the movie and mm. it also i think in, it helped helped us you know for, from an acting standpoint to really you know make it make it even more real this is it's a really interesting film actually because it's it's got you know on on one level yes it's a horror film but on another level it's a character study partially of a of a marriage that's seen better days for one thing, but also of of your character as well, who is burdened, shall we say, by you know the baggage of his past and is is slowly but surely falling apart. Uh, but at the same time, Kevin, I, I there, there are notes of dark humor all the way through it. This you know it is at times a very funny performance. Was that something that you and and David were keen to layer? So it wasn't just your jump scare filled horror film. There's something else going on here. Well, to me, yes, absolutely. And um, Dave has a really dark sense of humor. And even in the darkest stuff that he writes, he always um, injects a kind of, I don't know, there's just a great kind of quality of of, of turn of phrase that he has of, of looking at life and even the darkest parts of life and, and, and putting a slightly funny kind of spin on it. That's just a great talent that... that um, he has as a writer and yeah, I mean, I, I, that was, that was important to us. And we also really wanted to make a film that was character based because, you know, the, the great horror films to me, um, in the vein of Rosemary's baby and don't look now and, and the shining, um, or, you know, or, or, and, uh, get out you know, these are all real character movies, you know, mm. they, 
that's that's what that's the kind of horror that I am uh, interested in. A film where even if you took out the uh, supernatural or the or the scary kind of part of it, it would still to me be an interesting thing to to explore. And the, and the exploration here is, as you said, about a guy who is married to a woman who's way too young for him, and about the paranoia and jealousy that's made its way into their relationship, and also about about this this man who um, has dark things in his past and things that he has um, uh, done in his past that are starting to kind of come up for him or never really went away. And I think that in the era of, of, of Me Too and, and certainly in the current climate of, of social and racial, racial justice that's in, mm. this, in this country, you know, a lot of stuff that people have done in their past is starting to come up. And it's even more um, evident because of the digital footprint that we've been leaving uh, through through for a lot of years, you know. Mm. So the movie has to do partly with how do you pay for your sins and how do you forgive yourself for your sins or not? Or is, are you ever able to pay for them? You know, it means like that kind of thematic stuff is, are the things we wanted to deal with in this film. It's the second time that you've worked with, with David Kep. The last time was Stir of Echoes, another great psychological horror slash thriller. And looking at your your career over the years, Kevin, it's actually quite unusual for you, I think, to work with the same director more than once. <laughs> yeah, they never hire me twice. <laughs> Wait a minute, that's not that's not my choice. That's not my choice. <laughs> uh, okay, interesting. Um, but I was just I, I just I noticed, for example, that you worked with Ron Howard a couple of times. You worked with Barry Levinson yeah. a couple of times. But right. but by and large, this is you, you know you're you're a one and done kind of chap. But it's it's not it's not your decision. It's, it's it's theirs. <laughs> no, it really isn't. I, honestly, I mean, I don't think I could. I mean, I the, met with the amount of movies that I've done. It's a very small list of directors that I would not want to work with again. And mm. and in the case of Stir of Echoes, I had such a great time with David, and we were so happy with the result from that film. And and it's a genre that I you know love. Um, and I I I just kind of felt like we could do this again. And so I started, you know, kind of bugging him about it and it, it took 20 years, but I finally wore him down and, <laughs> and we, we made this movie and, and it was, it was equally as exciting a process for, for both of us and, and, and creatively satisfying. And uh, I recently did a, uh, a reading an audio book reading of a, of a fantastic novella that he wrote and you know i hope we can keep collaborating you know for for a long time because it's uh, I, I love working with him the directors that you have worked with in the past uh, a mm -hmm. couple of times the likes of barry levinson and ron howard as i said you know it, it was that a similar situation where you you clicked with them first time around or is it, is it just something that that swings around a, a few years later i mean there's there's a fair gap for example between diner and sleepers yeah i mean it's you know directors um you know, directors go off and they and they get scripts and they have, you know, parts that are, you know, worth exploring or not. And it's just, you know, you, you can't it's it's hard to control that. I mean, I I certainly, you know, would have gone back to work with with Ron and in a in a second. Um, mm. But, you mm. know, it wasn't until Frost Nixon that something came around that he, you know, thought I was right for or 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 you know, whatever. And the same thing with Barry, uh, you know, 
it's just um, that's just that's just the way it goes. You, you, you know, I think that you know, as an actor, you don't. There's a lot of things that are out of your control. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, even if you're a successful actor, you, the, the, the image is kind of that, you know, you're, you're making your own rules, you know what I mean? That you're, you're, everyone is just gonna, is, is lining up at your door, but it, you know, it's not really the case. I mean, you have mm -hmm. to, you know, you have to, directors have to do what directors are going to do. They've got to, they've got to do what's best for the picture, you know? And, um, it's not always a question of, you know, just casting the same people again and again. Now there are some people that kind of, put a, you know, kind of a company together and, mm. and, and use that company, you know, frequently. But I've, I guess I've just never been in that uh, club somehow. You're in the, you're in the David Kep club and that's, that's good enough for me. <laughs> it's just you and him at the moment, <laughs> but that's fine. Um, one of the things that uh, I think over here over the last few years in this country, particularly, uh, you know, that people will, will have seen you in a lot is are the EE commercials that you do over here. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to ask specifically, one of, the, one of the ones that came up a few years ago really tickled me is the one where you played a number of your famous roles. Um, yeah. You know, the House Full of Bacons. Right, right. I just wanted to know if uh, if you had any input into the into the roles that were selected for those oh, commercials. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't remember if I did. I think probably not. Listen, you know, they have amazing writers and directors and uh, funny, funny ideas. I have to say that th this string of commercials that I've made has been fantastic for me um, because first off, they're a lot of fun and I get to do all kinds of goofy stuff in them. And so that, you know, I can make fun of myself and, and, and be seen in a way where I'm not, where, where I don't really take myself too seriously, you know, yep. because it's like, I, I really take my work as seriously as I possibly can. And I think that certainly in the, in, in this industry and, in, and, in, in, in Hollywood, I am thought of as like kind of uh, uh, like the stuff that, that I'm involved with is sort of intense and dark, you know? Yeah. So, but that's not the hundred, that's not a hundred percent kind of who I am. You know, I, I, I really like to joke around and, and do, you know, silly stuff. And the, the East uh, spots have really, uh, you know, given me that opportunity. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been great. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a great gift to have, to have had this um, relationship with them for, for so many years. And, and generally um, you, you know, you, these things last whatever a year or two. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's kind of, it's, 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 it's great. And, you know, I, I, when they came to me with that movie club thing, I thought, okay, this is a, this is a great, there was just something about that and about the kind of idea of six degrees and the having hung out for so long and done all these different kinds of things. It was like a perfect, silly, you know, thing for me to fit really nicely into. But mm. to answer your question, I think they picked the roles, not, not me. If you had picked your roles, uh -huh. is there one that you would have put in there that they didn't go for? <laughs> oh God, I don't know. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, maybe uh, Tremors was that in there? I can't remember. Uh, he was. I think he was mentioned, but he wasn't available. 
Oh, he, he was he, okay. he was deep yeah. underground, if I remember yeah. rightly. Well, I the... think I, oh, right. Okay. <laughs> I think I would have done that one. You know, the thing, the funny thing about that, speaking about you know scary movies, is that I made that movie, um, and it's really the only character that I've ever thought about revisiting because mm-hmm. I think that he was an interesting character because he's not like really, you know, people always, when writers always describe characters and they always do this, they go, well, you know, he's a very smart, you know, he's streetwise, but he's smart. Well, you know, he's, he's whatever, but he's smart. And this guy was just not smart, which is one <laughs> of the things that was really fun about playing him. And he had this extra, he's an ordinary guy who had this extraordinary circumstance. And I was really interested in seeing what would happen to him 25 years later. Yeah. And uh, we developed it into, with, with Blumhouse, by the way, into a really excellent pilot, which we shot. Mm. And one of my greatest disappointments in, uh, in my career is that the network decided not to move forward with that series. It was a really, really fun, funny take on it. And mostly it was just fun to get back into that guy's skin. You know, he's, he's, he's sort he's essentially sort of the same man, but you know, has just gone into a, you know, he's just, he's just a mess, you know, and, mm. uh, and, and looks beaten up and, and can't really walk as well. You know what I mean? It was all that kind of stuff was really fun, but, but uh, yeah. So I think, I, I think that would probably be the one. That would be the one. That's the, that's it. I mean, when you play a guy called Valentine McKee, I mean, the, the the name tells you pretty much what you need to know about him, right? I mean, that's that's where you start, I guess. Absolutely, great name. <laughs> great name. Start with the name. That's a really good choice, Kevin. I'm, one of the characters, weirdly enough, in that E commercial, not to dwell too much on that, um, is your Friday the Thirteenth character complete with the arrow sticking through your chest yeah now i know i've read a lot of interviews with you uh surrounding you should have left and i know that pretty much everybody who's talked to you about that movie brings up friday the 13th because it's a horror film and because it's 40 years old this year but from your point of view that was one of your first gigs you're killed fairly early in the film are you surprised or mystified that people still bring it up all these all these years later what I'm mystified about is, you know, because of cell phones and cameras, well, this was before the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, autographs have kind of gone by the wayside. Nobody wants an autograph. They want a selfie, right? Which they don't anymore because you've got a mask on and you're six feet apart. And so, <laughs> the, so the selfie is, this, it's, it's one of the, it's one of the, it's one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that the selfie is pretty much disappeared. Uh-huh. Um, but when but there still are actual autograph hounds who will meet you at an airport or an event and have stacks and stacks of eight by tens for you to sign with a blue Sharpie, always a blue Sharpie because blue doesn't fade as quickly as black apparently in, in the, in the the world of Sharpie. So I call them blue men and (laughs) blue men, I would say 80% of the time, hand me a picture of me dead in Friday the 13th with an arrow sticking out of my throat and my face covered with blood. (laughs) I don't understand why 
you why the one picture you want is me dead. It, but I have signed countless, countless numbers of me dead pictures <laughs> to the point where it just gets after a while, it just gets a little disturbing. You know what you should do? You should just go around with a stack of pre-signed photographs and then just hand them out, preempt them. That's a very good idea. <laughs> it all comes full circle eventually. But uh, Kevin, it's been an absolute pleasure. I will let you go. But uh, um, best of luck for the future uh, with your stop motion animation. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, look, watch out for it. It's coming soon. Thanks very much. Cheers. Cheers. Okay, so that was Kevin Bacon, and You Should Have Left is out now on P-V-O-D, and we'll be discussing it later on in the reviews section. But for now, it is time to talk about this week's movie news, and apart from the fact that Colin Farrell and Robert Pattinson are up in Liverpool shooting the Batman, there actually is some pretty big news Mm. this week. Mm. And I'm going to start with, I think, the biggest news, which is that it is confirmed at last that George Miller is going to make Furiosa... The prequel to Mad Max Fury Road, which is now officially entitled Mad Max Furiosa, despite the fact that Mad Max won't be in the film. And it is also confirmed that Anya Taylor-Joy, and I suspect that that was going to be the case, uh, is going to play Furiosa. But that's that's not all. Uh, the cast has been swelled, and I use that word advisedly. Swole. Swole. It is swole and thick with the additions of Chris Hemsworth and Yahya Abdul-Mateen II. Mm. I mean, Very all exciting. good people. All really yeah. good people. I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, my position on prequels, but, but you know, they're all good people. And, and George Miller making another Mad Max universe movie has got to be an exciting thing. I just, you know, how do you, how do you have a happy ending is probably the wrong word, but how do you? And a prequel to Furiosa's story. I don't know. But it'll be interesting. I largely echo Helen. I'm a big fan of Fury Road, and I will follow George Miller all the way to Valhalla, <laughs> shiny and chrome. <laughs> Witness me! Mediocre. Um, <laughs> but, but I'd be infinitely more excited about a sequel with Charlize as opposed to this movie. Um, I like all the people that have been cast, and I'm intrigued to see what, Miller, what story Miller wants to tell. Um, but Charlize is what made Furiosa. Yeah. Mm. Without Charlize, we wouldn't be getting this movie. And I would, would, would where that story leaves that character. I'm like, I want mm. to see what happens next uh, after that. I don't necessarily want to go back to see how she got herself into the situation in the first place. But again, it's George Miller. Benefit of the doubt. Let's see. Let's see what he wants. Yeah, to, I'm with you. I'd, I'd much rather see what happens next with with Charlize and the role. I mean, also, where is the Rictus Erectus origin story that we're all crying out for? Yeah, I guess that's really what's missing. Yeah, <laughs> that's a big one. That's one that people are all Holly. demanding. I get where you're coming from, and I I do share those sentiments to a degree. But if this is the story he wants to tell and he's a genius and if it comes... She's very good. She yeah, is very, very She's good. tremendous. And of all the actresses who were yeah. in the running yeah. for it or had been rumoured to be in running for it, the second I heard her name, I was like, well, yeah, it's going to be her. It's, it's going to be her. Um, I should be a casting director. I'm really good oh at this. Oh my God, you're so good at it. Wow. Uh, yeah, like she's good. <laughs> Cast her in something. That's, that's I presume, how it works. Uh <laughs> And the addition of Chris Hemsworth and yeah, yeah, Abdul Mateen II is also really, really good casting. Some people were speculating might Hemsworth be playing a younger Lee Morton Joe, but I don't know if he's going to go down that route. 
And I also love how much it's going to piss off the people who were already angry at Max having to share the screen and uh, somewhat defer to Furiosa in Fury Road that this is a Mad Max film that won't have any Mad Max in it as well, which is, which is great. Pissing off the right kind of people. I like it. I predict that that title is changing before it gets released. I doubt Mad Max will still be in the title when all is said and done. We shall see. We shall Could see. Could argue you're, you're cutting off a big part of your yeah. appeal with that if you do that. It feels like the studio would insist on it, doesn't it? Yeah. Because it, it feels like that adds money to the box office just by virtue of association. But he's not in the movie. Yeah, but it'd be one of these things. I'm sure I'm sure that from a creative point of view, you're absolutely right. It shouldn't be there and we wouldn't want it to be there. But studio's thinking, cha-ching! Yeah. And, you it's know, weird, yeah. isn't it? Because I wouldn't have said Mad Max was a big, you know, draw before 2015. I think I, we actually had a conversation about this at one mm. point when Empire was, you know, talking about putting mm. it on the cover. And I'm like, is is that really a selling point? Like, it's a cult mm. series of films from 30 mm-hmm. years ago, is it? It's not like Star Wars or something. Obviously, history showed it had a, <laughs> if not a built-in audience, then certainly an audience that was intrigued enough to come out and see what all the fuss was about. So I yeah. guess they're they're relying mm. on that name recognition rather than the 40 years worth before it. Yeah, 100%. I will also say I hope Junkie XL comes back to score this movie because Brothers in Arms is still one of the best tracks that's been released in the last decade or so. And oh, if, if we can get more music like that. Mm. If there's no Duff Warrior, I'm walking out. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> it's just a prequel of Young Doof Warrior. <laughs> just a bloke learning to play his flamethrowing guitar. <laughs> Burning his eyebrows off as well as he, as well as uh, <laughs> callousing his fingers. Amazing. Yeah, but I'm all for that. But I'm, I'm, I also have to say, George Miller is now in his 70s and these things, I mean, Mad Max Fury Road took nearly four or five years to make. <laughs> and uh, I hope this one doesn't take as long. I hope they don't have the trials and tribulations that accompanied the, the, the shooting of, of Fury Road. Hopefully they yeah. won't. Hopefully it's going to be mm. fairly smooth, plain sailing. And also it may not be that type of movie. We just, we assume because it's got the Mad Max name attached to it, that it's going to be some sort of road movie, some sort of chase movie. <laughs> you think it's going to be like a knockabout sex comedy? It might be a knockabout sex comedy. We don't, there Good might now. be a sort of bedroom <laughs> farce with, you know, Hemsworth and Abdul Mateen II <laughs> walking in and out of bedrooms going whoops who knows uh-huh i mean obviously we'd all be there for watching that but but i i think not on the whole <laughs> i think i think not sex bars is where he's gonna take this that, thanks thanks george uh great great pitch um just a couple of notes number one maybe no sex farce question mark <laughs> i don't know he went that way with babe pig in the city didn't he that was a knockabout I mean, sex comedy i mean <laughs> Sorry, I'm just trying to envision the babe, babe Pig in the City version of a sequel to Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> That'll do, and Pig. Wow. <laughs> anyway, so yes, very excited to see whatever George Miller does with that. Uh, probably not a knockabout sex comedy, I'm guessing. What else do you guys want to talk about? There was a lot of stuff. Coming to America is no longer coming to America. That's quite depressing. Well, I mean, it is, but not in cinemas. <laughs> coming to America will instead be coming to Amazon in December, going straight to streaming. And I say boo to that, boo to you, sir. But also yay, because more people will get to see it. So, you know, at a time when there are a lot of cinemas closed, and uh, which is obviously 
horrific and unfortunate, but at least this way people get to see it, I guess, you know. It's true. I mean, I, I for one, am going to be glad to watch it. Mm. Given, I'd rather almost, do I, would I rather this than it get pushed back to like 2028 or something? I don't know. Like, I, I'd much rather see it in the cinema, yeah. but I will take seeing it over not seeing it, certainly. But it's just, yeah, it just feels like yet another nail in in the, I don't want to say coffin, but in the in the hibernation compartment of theatrical exhibition. Yeah. Yes, stasis chamber. Yeah, I yeah. was... <laughs> I was very frustrated by this news because, yeah, I was really looking forward to watching this film in the cinema. But Coming to America, as I said previously, mm. is my favorite comedy of all time. It's amazing. And my family have had many a happy time just watching that film, knowing everything that's going to happen, having watched it hundreds of times, but yet still laughing extremely hard at everything which happens. And I'm just thinking about a screening of you know, a, a, a coming coming to America double bill that's somewhere like Peckinplex that would have just bought that house. That assuming that coming to America is as good as we all hope it hope it is, that sort of thing would have really bought the house down. So it's frustrating to to not to be able to have that experience. Um, I'm just hoping that the film that we do get is still sort of as good as we hope it to be, and I'll I I look forward to hopefully uh, many more times with the family just having fun with that film as well. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, I find this all really, really sad. Yeah. I really do. And I, yeah, I get the argument that, yes, more people are going to see it. More people are going to see Soul when it opens at Disney Plus on December 25th. And having seen Soul now, I think it's absolutely terrific. But mm -hmm. I also think it's it's yep. possibly the most uncommercial Disney Pixar movie yet. So this actually might be a smart move, put it on, on Disney Plus rather than in cinemas. Um, but I... Yeah, I'm I, I'm sad when I see things like this. I'm sad when I see things like The Witches, which is now going not going to get a theatrical release over here. We talked about this a little bit last week, mainly because there are fewer cinemas in which to yeah. open it, I guess. So it's going to be on PVOD at the end of the month as well. I get sad about that. I get sad when I see Cherry. You know, it's, it's great that we're going to you know going to get to see these movies, but I just I just want I want to see them in cinemas and I, I want cinemas to stay alive and stay open. But we don't want to go over the ground. We went over in great detail last week yeah exactly it's it's tough times at least look i mean at least films are in production and coming out we've had a bunch of trailers out this week which we should talk about in a second but there is mm -hmm. one in production i wanted to mention which is adam mckay's don't look up which is has decided to is enter the adam race McKay's dogs don't look up uh no dogs can look up but this film is don't look up <laughs> this is uh the latest adam mckay film and he's clearly you know put his marker in the ground and tried decided to join the race for starriest cast ever and um, because he already had Jennifer Lawrence and Rob Morgan lined up. This week he added DiCaprio, Meryl Streep, Kate Blanchett, Jonah Hill, who obviously has Adam McKay form, Himesh mm -hmm. Patel, Timothee Chalamet, Ariana Grande, noted physici physicist Kid Cudi, Matthew Perry, <laughs> and Tomer Sisley. But yeah, this is uh, this is a bit good people. So basically, DiCaprio and Lawrence are a pair of mid-level scientists who discover that a meteor is going to strike Earth in six months. They try to warn the world, and everybody goes, "Uh." If you spot a, a clever metaphor for the climate crisis, <laughs> then well done you. It's pretty subtle, but I'm pretty sure it's there. If it's returned to the big short, Adam McKay, but with a little bit of a blending of Anchorman, Step Brothers McKay as well, then I'm absolutely all for it. Mm. Yes, indeed. Big cast. Hella big good cast. names. Yeah. See, if mm -hmm. I was a casting director, I would have cast those people. Oh my that's god, good that's amazing. Wow. That's how good I am. Imagine thinking of Meryl Streep for your film. I mean, who does that? You know? She's the media. In fairness, I have to point that out. 
<laughs> she spent several months circling the earth. Just I did, <laughs> I did read an amazing uh, description of her, which said she's uh, cast as an actress who, who uh, sorry, typecast as an actress who can't be typecast, which I thought was amazing. <laughs> um, Ridley Scott's making a Napoleon film with Joaquin Phoenix, and it's for some reason called Kitbag. <laughs> <laughs> Is it Napoleon the football locker room? I mean, years? genuinely, I was a bit. I'm a bit taken aback by it. I'm sure it makes sense in some fashion. Oh, it apparently comes from the saying: "There's a general's staff hidden in every soldier's kit bag." Oh, naturally, but, sure. Speaking Why of not? films that are going to change your name before they come out, <laughs> yeah, seriously, it's going to be called Mad Max Kit Bag by the time it comes out. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> um, and then also, Paddy Jenkins is working with uh, Gal Gadot again on a Cleopatra film, Coming which at has you. indeed it is uh, not not yes, that Cleopatra. That was in my head for days. <laughs> Cleopatra coming at you. At you. Cleopatra coming at you. Coming at you. Does anyone know the rest? Sure. No. They don't license the music. They've missed a fucking opportunity. <laughs> I don't know about this one. I don't know that we need another Cleopatra movie for a star. I, I certainly hope that they, you know, take a slightly different look at the character who's been over-sexualized since literally Roman times. It would be cool Lost. if they actually gave her some credit. Yeah, she was quite a sexy character. Didn't she Didn't she at one point marry two of her own brothers, as I recall? She's quite incesty historically. It's not, look, it's not... You just need some context <laughs> and like history, guys. Jeez. I don't think she married yeah. two of her brothers, actually. But anyway. Are you sure? I think she might have done. Okay, well, but, we'll look it up. Yeah. Point being, she's been over-sexualized since literally Roman times. She was actually quite a capable ruler by some accounts and maybe deserves mm. a bit more credit. Wasn't she the last pharaoh, essentially? Uh, yeah, I guess, maybe. But the point mm. is, it depends how you count it. Again, the point is, there's been a lot of controversy, though, over this casting. Because even though Gal Gadot is from the right part of the world, in that she is she from is. Israel, of course, and even though Cleopatra was at least half Greek because of the whole Ptolemaean thing, uh, there's at least some suggestion that her mother was North African and that therefore it should be a woman of colour or more colour playing this role, because certainly Gal Gadot's ancestors, I believe, were European. And only half of Cleopatra's were. Indeed. It's just frustrating in that the uncertainty which Helen speaks of means that Cleopatra, that there's no good reason why she shouldn't be played by a woman of colour. And yet we've had so many interpretations of this character, and every single time it's been a white actress or a white passing actress that's played her. You've got Elizabeth Taylor, Hildegard Neal, Claudette Colbert, Vivian Lee, Vivian Lee, and now Gal Gadot, they have cemented what Cleopatra should look like on screen, even though that shouldn't necessarily always be the case. So that's frustrating. And then you sort of, you know, you think about Hollywood's, you know, history of whitewashing, which is not great. It's not going to change unless the people in the positions of power, like a Paddy Jenkins, like a Gal Gadot, you know, enforce change and sort of make the decisions to create change um, because otherwise we are still going to keep uh, sort of getting what we're getting when it comes to these types of movies and and changes on the horizon you think about historical sort of recent historical efforts like what um, the personal history of David Copperfield did uh, and casting Deb Patel yeah. as that character mm. so this can be but that's done that's not a 200 million dollar movie be, I, I have to say yeah this change, I don't think, has to come from Patty Jenkins, necessarily. This change has to come from studio bean counters and studio executives who go, yeah. this is a $200 million movie, so therefore it has to make $800 million worldwide to break even. Therefore, in our 
way of thinking, this needs a big name to put bums in seats. Never mind the fact that there are loads of films out there that have made millions upon millions of dollars and have hit it big at the box office without big names. And that there are films out there that can make stars. It's not us that Patty Jenkins has to convince. It's the studio bean counters. Um, and hopefully they will change their, their I just mind don't think that any future. of that's true anymore. That's, that's the problem. And I think they know that. I don't think those calculations are true anymore, if they ever were, but I certainly think that they, they aren't now. I think it's outdated, outmoded thinking. I really do. Why don't we just cast Andy Serkis and be done with it? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> the Tolkien white men again. Jeez. Oh yeah, I can't open worms everywhere. There's parachutes in that sack. Oh no, oh no. No, I'm, I'm, I'm interested as well in the Napoleon film though. Like, I don't think we've sort of discussed that enough because... Napoleon nearly killed uh, Stanley Kubrick, didn't it? I mean, tr- I mean, trying to make a Napoleon film, not Napoleon personally, nearly killed Stanley <laughs> Kubrick. That that's a headline that I missed. I mean, that would be that would be a hell of a film, though, wouldn't it? Napoleon uh, stalking st- Stanley Kubrick, amazing. Um, I mean, it wouldn't be difficult. He doesn't leave his house. But yeah, this is supposed to be a, a personal look at Napoleon's origins and his swift, ruthless climb to emperor. Now, the swift, ruthless cl- climb to emperor. And Joaquin Phoenix, I think, could be great in in sort of Commodus mode, which obviously he played for Ridley Scott before. But the, the origin stuff, I'm a bit less concerned, less comfortable with, because like I feel like he's past the you know twenty year old Ecole Militaire kind of Napoleon stage of his life, and I'm just wondering, do they get somebody else, or do they have him sort of playing Napoleon across twenty twenty five years? Helen. Helen. Get that Marvel CGI yes. money. The <laughs> only Napoleon film we need to see is Temeraire, and I will hear no more for, no is, more about it. Th- I will agree with you on that. If you haven't read Temeraire, it's basically the Napoleonic Wars, but with dragons. And it's yep. amazing. Every historical <laughs> subject is improved at least 50% by the inclusion of dragons. That's just science. Wait, could we get some <laughs> dragons in ancient Egypt? I don't see Chris, why you're not. the casting director. Who would you cast? As a dragon. Yeah. I don't know. I'd cast us because we make this podcast drag on every single week. Hey. <laughs> Just a couple of other bits and pieces before we talk about some of the trailers that launched in the last week or so. So Ava DuFernay is going to direct a film called Cast, which is mm. interesting. I haven't read the novel this is based on, which is by uh, Isabella Wilkerson. Sorry, Isabel Wilkerson. But um, it, it's been critically acclaimed and is apparently fascinating. So I will. Pl- I plan to get after that now because if it's good yeah. enough for Ava to start look at it, adapting, then it's probably one that we should all have a look at. Tell us about it. What, what is it? What's happening in this? All I know is it's a, a multi-story structure, not in the car park sense, um, that examines the unspoken system that has shaped America and chronicle how, chronicles how our lives today are defined by a hierarchy of human divisions dating back generations, which I assume refers to racism and white supremacy, to be honest. But I yeah. don't know for sure, so I look forward to reading it. What little I know of cast Ava DuVernay feels perfect. Uh, for that story. So I'm intrigued to see what she's going to come up with. I think the last thing she did was One Day mm-hmm. See Us, which was obviously very, very good and won a ton of awards very deservedly. So I'm uh, happy that she's back in the director's chair. Should we talk about trailers? Yes. Yes. So there were a few this week. We can probably go through them pretty quickly. Uh, everybody's talking about Jamie. Uh, it's the trailer of the musical, or the film version of the musical, um, Richard E. Grant stars as a drag queen who mentors a young boy, Jamie of the title, uh, who thinks he wants to be a drag queen as well. I thought the musical was decent, but not incredible, I'll be honest. But this is a very fun trailer in a year that doesn't have a lot of fun. So I think people will enjoy that. 
then we also had the trailer for um, Monster Hunter, which I haven't yes. watched yet because I've been saving it as a treat. Honestly, is it? Fun? I just I, that that title is so vague. What, what's it about? <laughs> well, is well, it the Winchesters? <laughs> yes, yes, it is. <laughs> it, it is a very, very Paul W. S. Anderson movie. Um, yeah, it's based on the the, the the Monster Hunter games, which is essentially hunting giant mythical monsters. And this oh, is Mila Jovovich is a kind of soldier who gets sucked into an alternate world <laughs> in a Humvee with her other soldiers and is beset upon by dragons and monsters and things. Ooh, dragons. So, yes, exactly. Sometimes I just want to see some big-ass monsters and some <laughs> people with some big-ass weapons hunting them yeah. down. This seems, and I want to see this on a big-ass screen too, um, because the trailer already sort of on my little sort of laptop screen looked really, really cool. And watching this movie in IMAX is... And yeah, also, I will say that uh, the giant about. dragon thing is not the most ridiculous thing that Tony Jar kicked this week. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> if anyone's seen the trailer to the new Nick Cage film Jujitsu, is Tony Jar versus a shit spaceman? <laughs> that is quite extraordinary. I'm a man of simple taste. Sometimes. I just want to watch a movie in which Nicolas Cage fights an alien space ninja with a sword and martial yeah. arts. And that feels like that's what this yeah. movie's going to be. I'm Aliens here came to Earth, but they didn't count on jujitsu and Nick Cage. <laughs> they didn't count on Nick Cage. His ability to say yes to everything. It's like, it's like Mortal Kombat meets yeah. Predator. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it's certainly a film that's going to be coming out. And there's yeah. no question about it. It has that. the look of one of those just gloriously early 90s straight-to-video type titles where the space man is just some shit they threw together with bits of plastic they had lying around the studio. Um, mm. I Yeah, I very much want us to watch it. Yeah. Uh, Monster Hunter looks incredible. Yeah. It looks like the, yeah. the film that finally, the worthy follow-up to Event Horizon that's been lurking aside Paul W.S. Anderson all these years. It's going to be, it's going to be off the chain. It's going to be two stars, isn't it? It's going to be, it's going to be awful. It's going to be awful. <laughs> Maybe it'll be great. Maybe it'll be great. Maybe it'll be great. It Every day's Christmas great. Eve. And then there were a couple of other trailers as well. Amon, there was something you wanted to mention? Yeah, so there's a trailer for mm. Sylvie's Love uh, starring Tessa Thompson and Nandi Asamuga uh, in a jazz ever Ooh, romance. Uh, and yeah. it looked it looked really, really cool. It's out on Christmas Day on Amazon Prime. I'm always here for more black love stories. And this trailer also gave me La La Land vibes, uh. which I'm sure delights her in no <laughs> I did, You see, um, <laughs> now, like, I really like the trailer and now you've put me off it. So... Great. No, I I had a little bit of almost, um, if you've ever read the book Sex and the Single Girl, it almost has a little bit of an air of that about it because it's this, you know, she's a career girl trying to make her way in sort of 1950s, 1960s New York. And it had a little bit of that feel about it. And I really liked that it wasn't just a love story, that it's also a kind of a career story. And I thought that'd be an interesting twist on things. So uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Plus Tessa Thompson in a romance, Mm. like it's going to be great. Yarp, and then the other trailer was Hillbilly Elegy, in which Glenn Close and Amy Adams look directly at the camera during the trailer and say, please give me an Oscar, which I thought was <laughs> unusual. <laughs> look, it's it's a bold strategy, but they've been up, uh, what is it, six and five times respectively and uh, mm-hmm. still haven't won. Well, maybe they should be better. Have they thought about that? Oh my God. Wow. That is an unsupportable remark. Maybe you should act more. 
<laughs> well, they're certainly acting more here. I'll be honest. You could but, not um, act any more than they're acting. It's this, uh, look, this is the adaptation of the best-selling book by J.D. Vance, uh, chronicling his upbringing, and they play Amy Adams as his mother, Glenn Close as his grandmother, uh, and it's the sort of the family dramas that tie them all together. Uh, I. I yeah, they, they do feel like it's a very Oscar grabby one. And it's kind of a shame because both of them are absolutely of a caliber of person who deserves an Oscar. Both of them are Oscar underdogs who are well overdue a win. If they win for this, however, I have a feeling that there might be a bit of a almost backlash. You know, they might become somebody suggested on Twitter that this week that winning for this would make them Oscar villains. Um which would kind of be a shame. But uh but yeah, this this does look uh, this does look serious and heavy, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm mm-hmm. sure it will be interesting. Okay, so that was the news section, and now it is time to delve deep into this week's reviews. And with Halloween just around the corner, no, no, please no, just stop. Now it's time to review films. Review films. Review films. Now it's time to review films. Empire podcast. Chris, hello. Stop it. Not me. Stop it. I didn't do it. Stop it. I didn't do it. There are many ways of killing a man depicted in the Friday the 13th movies and indeed the Halloween Whoa. movies. Uh, <laughs> quick, quick course correction Jeez. there. Uh, don't make me try them out on you. Oh my word. All right. Okay. Anyway, because Halloween is just around the corner, uh, this week's films are mainly horror films. Hooray! Mm-hmm. And we've got ghosts and we've got werewolves and we've got vampires. Oh my. And we're going to start out with vampires versus the Bronx, which hit Netflix last week, and I think this is great, but does Helen O'Hara concur? I more or less concur. I somewhat concur. But this is a cute film. It's from uh, Oz Rodriguez is the director, and um, it's set in a part of the Bronx where gentrification is is sneaking in. They're beginning to buy up local businesses. They're threatening the local bodega, and three teenagers are trying to raise money to save the bodegas. They're, they're traveling around the neighborhood trying to get people interested in coming to a block party to raise money. And as they go, they begin to suspect that something is amiss. Um, Wouldn't you know it that there's a company called the Murnau Group who are buying up all of the local uh, buildings as they go. And I don't know if you know, guys, but they're kind of spooky looking and they kind of only come out at night and they don't seem to eat much. Could they be... Students! Shit! <laughs> Worst threat of all. Yeah, some of them do have long hair as well. Jeez, it's terrifying. So I think I thought this was actually quite cute. It very much owes something to a little bit to Buffy, a lot to the Lost Boys, like a lot to the Lost Boys. Uh, even the v- vampire design is very Lost Boysy, slightly mm-hmm. Buffy-y. They've got the sort of, you know, changing faces and stuff. But it, it has its own spin because it has a very strong sense of place. It has that sense of the Bronx. It has the sense of the people there. You know, it's a working class neighborhood. There is that, that it's a multi-ethnic neighborhood. There's that sense of, will the police believe us? If we go to them, can we trust the police? Which kind of speaks to racial division and social history in the US. And so that gives it a slightly different feel to just the normal vampire stuff. They all worship Blade once they find out about him and, and that is right well, and proper and as it should be. Exactly. Uh, so there's a lot of kind of comedy in this. There's a lot of kind of heart, I think, in its humour. It's not going to be the most terrifying film of the week. I, I feel s- set in saying that's I feel like that's safe enough. <laughs> <laughs> yes, even, even Amon was okay with this one. 
professional frady cat among women. <laughs> and around the sort of the the the, the core kind of trio are Jaden Michael, Jared W. Jones the third, and Gregory Diaz the fourth, uh, as our three heroes. But around them, there's a really good supporting cast of more experienced actors. You've got like Sarah Gaden, Method Man, Shea Wiggum, who's always good in everything. <laughs> a little tiny Zoe Saldana appearance. Really, really good people, and that kind of keeps. Uh, I think probably kept everybody's sort of standards up and everybody's interest high because these guys were obviously excited to be working alongside some of those people. So, yeah, I just it's quite charming. It's quite cute. It's not very scary, but it doesn't want to be. So I liked it. I don't think it's going to rewrite the vampire novel history film, but it's cute. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with all of that, and. When they turned to Blade for advice, the film went up at least another star for me. Uh, that was just great. Blade gets more respect in this film than many people in our industry have given it over the last two decades. It's wonderful. Some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate up. I was always. waiting for somebody to say that line when they iced the vampire. That was the only thing missing. I was just waiting for it. And there were many opportunities, but nobody did it. That, I ugh. think they were worried about the rating. Uh, you, see, you can have bleeped it out and made it even funnier. <laughs> can't bleep it out but yeah I, I really enjoyed this the kids have great chemistry um, and they make four really fun heroes to root for as well um, it's a little mm. bit on the nose but I found it very very charming and it made me want to rewatch Blade which is no small thing oh yeah it must be a day ending and why <laughs> yeah. Mainly because Blade is a thousand times better than this film, but uh, it's it is fine. Like I thought, this is okay. I'd have given this three. Yeah. Ben Travis, lunatic that he is, gave it four. <laughs> no, I I'm can't with ben. imagine why. I'm absolutely with Ben in this. I thought it was. See, it, I found it gently funny, very far from hilarious. Um, it has entertaining moments. It's just it's very low rent. I think I like the fact that it's well written and it's clearly self aware and it knows what it's doing. Mm. Um, and it does, you know, it definitely has sort of an eye towards referencing the Lost Boys. In fact, there's a scene almost lifted directly from the Lost Boys in it. I can't help but think that kind of Lost Boys in the Hood was the elevator pitch for this film. <laughs> but, um, I, I, you know, and, and some lovely moments. There's a death by skateboard moment, the Blade stuff really enjoyed. But largely, it just it felt really kind of hammy and oh, really corny and bear in mind I've seen every single episode of Forever Night so I have quite a high tolerance for shit vampire schlock but this you know it was diverting like I say I'd have given it three but I did not you Love are it. without a heart you are <laughs> hollow <laughs> Yeah, I like the fact you know it might have been a little on the nose that the the the, the company the the construction company was Murnau Productions mm -hmm. and there's a little picture that iconic picture of uh, the etching of Vlad the Impaler on their logo. It's like, yep, guess good, low key, like what you're doing there. The only thing that irritated me is that the kids are on the ball, but the adults, come on, there's so well, many clues but, as to what is but going on. But that's classic horror movie mm, fun, isn't are. it? Like, they that's never the are. classic formula. Adults don't have a clue when it comes to horror. The kids are the Idiots. only ones who see it. <laughs> Look around you, man. <laughs> yeah, look around you. Yeah, I, I, I had a blast with this. I'm absolutely on board with this uh, and Ben's four-star review. I thought it was just terrific. I think it's a better remake of Fright Night than the actual remake of Fright Night. Mm. Um, there's a lot of Fright Night in here as well. There's a lot of Lost Boys, as, as Helen alluded to earlier on. Four stars. We gave us one four stars for Vampires vs. Bronx. And uh, do seek it out on Netflix if you fancy. Up next is The Wolf of Snow Hollow, which is the eagerly anticipated second film from Jim Cummings, who is a writer, director, star, breakout writer, breakout director, breakout star of last year's wonderful Thunder Road. And this season play a fairly similar character. This time he's a small town cop in a very, very snowy town of Snow Hollow, 
trying to solve a series of murders that may or may not have been perpetrated by a werewolf. A oh. werewolf, you say? How? Oh, no! <laughs> I'm on Warman. You used to be a film critic, but you're all right now? <laughs> what did you think about this? Tell us about this one. So yeah, Jim Cummings writes, directs, stars in this film as John Marshall. He's a sort of stressed out police officer who is struggling to contain uh, the paranoia that grips his uh, sort of uh, small mountain when a string of grisly murders happens. It may be, may be the work of a serial killer and maybe the work of a werewolf. Um, and I had a decent time with this. Um, I really liked Ricky Lindholm as Officer Julie Robertson. She's like the only one besides uh, John Marshall, who is competent. Uh, this film is also very, very funny. It gets a lot of humor out of Marshall getting mad at his colleagues for being very, very bad at their jobs, <laughs> which made me laugh quite a bit. Um, and similar to Thunder Road, there's a lot about toxic masculinity in this film, um, which I think they do a really, really good job of, uh, especially when it comes to what John Marshall is going through um, and how sort of his arc develops with his daughter, especially over the course of the film, I think is really, really well done. So yeah, I actually think this is better as a comedy than a horror. It's not really that scary, which again, suits me just fine. More films like this, please. Um, so it's a bit of a tonal, <laughs> <laughs> bit of a tonal clash, uh, but it kind of worked for me. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I find Jim Cummings' performance incredibly off-putting, especially in the early scenes. I, I kind of got into it a little bit more as the film went on and got into this weird tone that they were going for that wasn't... I didn't find it either comic or hor horrifying, I guess, which is the problem, but it was in between the two, which I maybe wasn't giving it credit for at the opening. And I just find the lines sort of clumsy and clunky in a way that I didn't love as well. So even, even once I got past the performance issues, I, I still didn't like the script. And I get, again, I, I agree with all the stuff about toxic masculinity and, and uncontrolled rage and all of those things. I thought that was interesting. I just didn't enjoy watching it at all, really. You could argue that you not liking his performance as a terrible human being is actually a... No, but I didn't like his performance as a performance of a terrible human being. It's not that I didn't like the character and that was my issue with it. I didn't get that he was a good actor from this at all. Really? I think he's no. really good. Not mm. in the first half, no. Okay, interesting. I, I should also mention this is, I think, Robert Forster's last role. Um, it is. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a fine send-off. There's, there's a line reading, which I'm not going to say because it's a bit of a spoiler, but it hits extra hard uh, knowing that Robert Forster's no longer with us. Uh, and I found that moment pretty powerful. So yeah. If you have seen Thunder Road, this is very much in the same ballpark stylistically and tonally. And also the character of John Marshall is fairly similar to the character that Jim Cummings played mm -hmm. in Thunder Road as well, but just with this potentially, possibly supernatural murder mystery breaking out all around him. So he's completely out of his depth. He's got these rage issues. He's an alcoholic. He's lashing out at everybody and everything. He's a terrible, terrible human being. And at certain points in the movie is, I think, trying to push your endurance levels. Like, how much can you infest in this guy who is making fuck-ups and mistakes at every possible opportunity? But I think... The last 25 minutes or so brings it round very, very nicely. I think there's he displays a very uh, interesting evolution 
as a director from Thunder Road, which was a, a lot of fixed camera shots, a lot of closed off camera shots as well. There's a bit more. He does a bit more stylistically here as well. It's more expensive than Thunder Road. It looks more ambitious than Thunder Road. It's an interesting one because I don't know how much this is going to please horror hounds. Uh, and the comedy, I mean, as Helen said, the comedy is very dark. I liked it not as much as Thunder Road, but uh, it is, I think, if you're into that movie, if you're into werewolves, if you're into very, very pitch black comedy, then it's definitely worth a look. It's on PVOD right now. And last, in the scary films stakes, we have the reunion of David Kep and Kevin Bacon. As discussed earlier on, this is You Should Have Left, in which Kevin Bacon goes to Wales, uh, which is very difficult to do <laughs> these days. <laughs> yes, that's the scariest part about this film. No, this is, uh, this is indeed, uh, as you said, the sort of uh, a spiritual follow-up to Star of Echoes. This stars Kevin Bacon as Theo, who is a retired banker married to Susanna, a uh, successful actress, some thirty years his junior, uh, which is kind of which initially you might not bat an eyelid at because this is a Hollywood film, but actually does serve a point in this plot. Uh, their relationship is going through some difficulties, I think. So they take their young daughter Ella and uh, go away to the uh, what can only be described as the most lavish Airbnb I've ever seen. There's a lot going on in this, so I, I, I won't get into spoiler territory. But Kevin Bacon's past is. Uh, shall we say, interesting in that his wife is famous and he is perhaps known as infamous. Uh, and so he tends to keep his identity as secret as he can. And when they get to the house, so it's a haunted house kind of set up-ish, but it's really kind of probing. There's a lot of subtext here about insecurity and and, and, and masculinity and aging and you know the, the massive sort of like sort of neuroses he has over having this much uh, younger wife. But um, it's got some elements of The Shining to it. I'm trying desperately to tiptoe around the plot. So there's some elements <laughs> of The Shining to it in terms of this is part sort of supernatural thriller and part one man's nervous breakdown. Um, yeah. I found it really interesting and I actually mm. really enjoyed it, partly because I really like the three central performances. Um, Bacon is great, Safer is good, but honestly, uh, Avery Essex, who plays mm-hmm. her daughter Ella, one of the most naturalistic child performances I've seen in a very, very long time. I thought she was fantastic. Um, I will say there are a lot of, shall we say, very familiar, well-worn horror tropes in this. The nightmares sort of waking up from a dream trope is very overused um but it is suspenseful it's atmospheric i think they use the house architecture very well because mm. it's kind of a, a slightly interesting modernist horror house and some good use of reflections for some of the horror in there there's a lot of third act weirdness to look forward to which we can't really get into at this point yes uh you know it blurs the lines between fantasy and reality it, it's had a bit of a kicking elsewhere i enjoyed this a lot more than i thought it would it's no stir of echoes it doesn't work quite on that level but uh, i think it's i think it's good enough i you know i thought this was fun i enjoyed it more than mm. the vampires in the Bronx. Oh no, I just <laughs> I vampires versus the Bronx is a lot easier to recount the plot of. It is, than this, as you just it proved. <laughs> but, but yeah, but this is a film whereby to recount the plot is problematic because you have to avoid recounting the plot. Yeah. No, yeah. I I enjoyed Vampires versus the Bronx more than this, but I did think that this was decent. The more the themes of the film began to reveal themselves, the more interesting this film got. I think Bacon, especially in the latter half of the movie, really sort of puts in a great performance. Um, mm. So, so yeah, I, I'm also not going to say too much more um, because I don't want to spoil it. But, um, but yeah, I thought it was decent and not too scary, which is a win for a month. 
<laughs> I have to say that's a really interesting <laughs> point because none of the films we talked about this week, they're all horrors per se. That's where you'd mm. find them if you had a blockbuster left and you went in and they'd be in the horror section, right? But none of them mm. are particularly scary and I think no. that's intentional. He's not that sort of director and it's not that sort of film and it's, it's, it is a character study of this man who is, you know, he's besieged by the ghost of his past in a way, uh, trying desperately to, to retain some sort of equilibrium. And that's not very jump scary, I have to mm. say. Vampires vs. the Bronx is a PG. I'm not. It may not. Well, there is. There is an F word. So there's a PG. It's a PG thirteen movie. There's barely any scares in that. And the Wolf of Snow Hollow is the most terrifying thing in that. Is Jim Cummings and his rants, his <laughs> alcohol fueled rants. Uh, I would say even more than the the wolf thing going around killing people. So this is a this is a weird. Odd, I don't think any. Yeah, yeah I don't think any of these movies are certainly elevated horror. You certainly couldn't call Vampires vs. Bronx elevated horror, but they, there does seem to be a, a weird reluctance to embrace gore, scaring people, and gore. Yeah, definitely gore. You I mean Vampires vs. Bronx will not satisfy gore hounds? That no, is but, for sure. I mean, even Wolf of Snow Hollow. You you know, it's clear there have gory things have happened. They are discussed, mm. but they are yeah. in no way shown. Which you know, I'm not saying is a bad thing, but like yeah. it's it's definitely a thing. Absolutely. So I don't really know what we're saying here, apart from the fact that don't go into these expecting to peek at all three films through your fingers. But I think all three films have merits, certainly. Um, and don't expect having that gore hound part of you sated in any way, shape or form either. But yeah, I like this film. I thought it was, it was anchored by a tremendous performance by Kevin Bacon. Um, and Amanda Seyfried is also very, very impressive indeed as his wife. So three stars then for both You Should Have Left and The Wolf of Snow Hollow. Uh, very, very quickly we have another film out this week which isn't a horror film but may be the scariest film of the week because yep. basically the uh, spoiler alert, everyone dies. It's uh, <laughs> I Am Greta which is a documentary by Greta Thunberg, the schoolgirl who's trying to save the world and a bunch of dickheads are trying to stop her. Yeah, and this is a this is a film that they started shooting basically when she started her campaign. Like the filmmaker has been following her since she was on her own outside um, the Swedish Parliament on her school strike, uh, and has followed her all the way up through. You know, talking to the UN and going around the world and talking to world leaders. Um, this guy Nathan Grossman has been with Greta and her family, in particular her dad. So it's very intimate. It's very up close. Uh, you literally see her and her dad, you know, packing the car for long trips and uh, her having a meltdown because she doesn't want to, you know, stop working on a speech and, and actually have some much needed rest before before a big day. And and you get the sense of her as a person, of a te- of her, a sense of her as a teenager, a sense of her as a neurodiverse person on the autism, autistic spectrum. You also see how completely ridiculous it is for uh, American Republicans to suggest that her parents are manipulating her in any way. This is clearly something that comes from her and that her parents certainly support, but in no way mm. push on her. And you see the toll it takes because it is incredibly, incredibly difficult. I think what's missing from this film is is a bit more of the context and a bit more of the wider perspective on what she's doing and a bit more analysis of why the fuck the world won't listen and why nothing is happening. And and that's what's really frustrating and really, really scary about this film is that they're all essentially patting her on the head and saying she's wonderful and saying how important what she's doing is and saying, isn't she great? And then ignoring her and going back to business as usual, and and really we as a as a as a reality as a as a planet cannot afford to do that, and that is what we are doing anyway. And it has to start with you know 
I mean, we can all cut down on freaking plastic straws and eat less meat and it's not going to do the job. We need governments to act and we need to force our governments to act. And right now they're not listening to us or her. Yeah, this is really tough, actually, I think. Mm. I think it's a... As a documentary, it's a bit, you know, limited, as I said, and and I think a bit lacking in in oversight. But it is a very good look at her as a person. So I think we gave this three stars. We did indeed three stars for I Am Greta. That makes Vampires versus the Bronx this week's film of the week. You made me remember to do film of the week. That's we've done it this week. So therefore, well done, Vampires versus the Bronx. James is practically a gog with happiness <laughs> at that. He is. He's furious. Cold. Sit upon a furious. throne of lies. <laughs> <laughs> smell of uh, beef and cheese. Indeed. Anyway, on that bombshell, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by Olivia Cook, star of the Irish gangster comedy drama Pixie. Very exciting indeed. But until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye of my three colleagues of such lethal cunning, Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. Amon Warman. Peace. And that other fella, mm. James Dyer. Disgruntled grunt. That's what you get from me. <laughs> <laughs> What's different from your other musings on the podcast? They're all disgruntled grunts, Jimbo. <laughs> They're all disgruntled grunts. And of course, it is goodbye from me. I'm off to bypass cinemas and head directly to streaming. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200 million. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week. Bye. Bye.